This is Alan Cozen, the author of Got That Something, How the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything, and you're listening to Fab Four Free For All, brackets, the brackets. On this week's episode of the Fab Four Free For All, the guys are joined by our three friends, authors Richard Buskin, Alan Cozen, and Mark Lewison for a panel discussion that was recorded live at the Grand Hyatt Hotel at the Fest for Beatle Fans on February 9th, 2014. That's right, the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' legendary appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. We'll talk about the Beatles' arrival in America, the events leading up to their arrival in America, and we may just do a little bit of speculating. What if... We take you now live to the Grand Hyatt Hotel. Good evening, everyone. We were speaking of politics, and now we will continue the program. The but, uh, Sorry. Wow. Sorry. That got your attention, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, now you know. Right, okay. Wow. So, good evening and welcome to uh, what will be an episode of a show called Fab Four Free For All. How many of you are familiar with the show? Yay! All right. Thank you. And you still showed up. And you still showed up. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, we have an esteemed panel here today. We're delighted to uh, be... I'm pretty esteemed to him. Esteemed. I've been boiled, too. I will start from my far left. Pledge allegiance to the flag. Okay. All the way on my left, Mr. Alan Cozen, the author of Got That Something? How the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Changed Everything. And also writer for New York Times and all kinds of fun things. Mr. Mitch Axelrod, my usual co-host, author of Beatle Tunes and a fan of Benny Hill. Written by Mark Lewison. Written by the gentleman to my immediate left, Mr. Mark Lewison, as you know. <laughs> author of Yay! Author of the Beatles, tune in all these years and all kinds of other great books that we've come to rely on <laughs> very heavily. He did to write my, the pamphlet, by the way. Oh, yes, I forgot. I'm Tony Chiguardo, and I do nothing but this show. No, I, I, do, I do, do the nothing. Fab Four Free for All. I also do a show called 4F Free Format for Free that can be heard Monday nights on WCWP.org and streaming on the Voice of Peace Radio, which comes out of Israel. So look it up. It's a cool station, international, and uh, really neat. To my immediate right here is Mr. Richard Buskin, the author of Beatles 101, The Need to Know a Guide. And to my right is Rob Leonard. Anyway, hey, no, hey, I'm sorry. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> to my far right is Mr. Rob Leonard, who is the 30-year-plus host of Beatles songs on WHBC Thank Radio. Hard to believe. And uh, I'm going to be moderating and trying to be as moderate as possible on uh, this episode. And um, it is 50 years uh, this week, which is the reason why this uh, event is as crowded as it is today. We're celebrating 50 years of the Beatles' arrival in America. We're celebrating 40 years, obviously, of the Fest for Beatles fans, which I say are directly tied in with one another. But we have all been giving some thought, obviously, uh, in this past week, to the event of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. And what we thought we'd do is we'd talk a little bit about the whys, hows, and what happened for the actual uh, event of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. But then there'll be a little bit of speculation. Now, you can say with all these great fact people up here, why speculate? Well, because the most fun way to speculate is when you have a fact base to speculate from. So we've got some people with some really great minds up here. And, and uh, well, I, let's face it, it's more fun to speculate. Oh, on no, I was that really... thinking about the great what? mind comment. <laughs> 
and it'll work with these guys too. So, um, but three of them. Uh, yes, but I'm going to I'm going to just toss out first. You're tossing out, and we'll we'll look at a little bit of history. I'm going to go to my immediate left. The the history that brought about the Beatles' actual appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. So we can give a little background on how it came to be, and then we can take it from there. You mean, how did the Beatles come to be on the Ed Sullivan Show? Um, It was known in Britain that the Ed Sullivan Show was the biggest shoe on American television. (laughs) Size Size nine. nine, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it didn't play in Britain, so we didn't actually, we didn't know what the show looked like in Britain. Right. But it was known within show business, which is what it was, that it was the big show. If you wanted to be big in America, you had to be on the Ed Sullivan show. And Ed, Ed, Big Ed had a, um, a talent scout in London, a guy called Peter Pritchard, whose job it was, uh, among other things, to recommend talent that Ed might want to have on the show. And Ed actually did have quite a lot of British talent before the Beatles. Mm. Cliff Richard and the Shadows, our biggest rock pop group, were on it in October 62. Tessie uh, O'Shea. I think <laughs> Tessie O'Shea, one of our biggest talents. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so um, Brian Epstein was told that Peter Pritchard is the guy to go to if you want to get on the Ed Sullivan show. And Peter started to suggest the Beatles quite early and Ed kept saying no. This is what what I understand. Hmm. Until eventually Peter Pritchard said, you've got to take them, they are the hottest property. Uh, And he set up the meeting with uh, Brian Epstein and Ed, which happened in November in New York at the Delmonico Hotel, I think. So uh, that's how it happened, and they struck the deal for the three shows. In in England, what was the equivalent of the Ed Sullivan show? Sunday night at the London Palladium. Mm. I said that without moving my lips. You're very good. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually got, talking got to Rob, but that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's and if it. you made it there, you it was the Ed Sullivan. You made it anywhere. Yeah, yeah. The, the the London Palladium was the pinnacle of British entertainment. So if you and the Beatles starred, they were top of the bill on that. So right. that that appeared to be about as far as they were going to go. But of course, mm-hmm. it was it was nowhere near the top. Now let's keep that in mind. That was as far as they would have gone. Let's remember that as we move on. Okay, now we'll take the Ed Sullivan Show, and we'll take well actually let's take the events leading up to the Ed Sullivan Show. Capitol Records had turned down a number of Beatles singles, but now the time had finally happened. Capitol Records, because of you know, pressure finally, uh, had given in and picked up a Beatles single. Now I will jump to my far left and we'll, we'll set up for, the Beatles now have a number one record. They're gonna come to America when they have a number one. That number one is, of course. I wanna hold your hand. Thank you, Which but what was the song? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mitch. Oh. <laughs> you two, get a room. <laughs> we have one. <laughs> it's Penthouse. <laughs> and Hustler, right? Really? Um, yes, and what's the, what's the question apart from what, what the record saying? No, I'm saying, in other words, you know, they're, they're ready to come to the States now, if I'm not mistaken, only with the number one record. Uh, they so were going to come anyway. I mean, okay. if it hadn't been number one, I mean, they were, they were still booked to play on the Sullivan Show and, and, okay. uh, and at Carnegie. And uh, so they, they would have come even if it was number three. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so the bookings happened first, then the record went to number one, but now pretty much the dominoes are getting set for them to, for world domination. 
shall we say. Something like that. World yeah. domination. Yeah. World, domination. <laughs> World domination by dominoes. <laughs> by dominoes. Okay. I mean, okay. and, 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 and along the way, I mean, it, there, there, were, there were all kinds of shenanigans, like um, Capital trying to get um, radio stations to stop playing it because it was getting too much airplay too many weeks before Capital was actually planning to release it. Now, how did that come to pass? There's a great story with that. Yeah. Um, well, because of uh, the Cronkite report that was broadcast on December 10th, um, a young girl in Silver Spring, Maryland, Marsha Albert, uh, wrote a letter to her favorite DJ in Washington, Carol James, and uh, said, why can't we hear music like this? And even though the, uh, the, the VJ and Swan singles were probably sitting right in his library and he didn't know it, uh, he had a BOAC stewardess uh, bring a copy of I Want to Hold Your Hand and invited the girl who wrote to him to play it on the radio. It apparently lit the switchboards up and uh, they put it into heavy rotation. And Capital came to him um, via a lawyer uh, and said, you know, you really should stop playing this. And he said, you're crazy, it's a hit. And not only that, he sent a tape to a friend in Chicago. And the first bootlegger. Yes. <laughs> well, the first Beatle bootlegger. Be Beatle bootlegger, right. And a friend in St. It was St. yellow Lewis. shrimp, right? <laughs> and and so it was getting airplay all around the country at, at this point, and Capitol realized that, you know, seeing as their job actually was putting out records, not getting them stopped being played, uh, <laughs> that they actually should put it out earlier than they had planned. So they put it out on December 26th, um, a date that screams out, we've been forced to rush release this. The day after Christmas. Think about it, folks. Great retail moment. Yeah, yeah. But you so, know what? So. This, with, I wanted to ask Mark, because Mark had a great story uh, when we were talking about what Capital had been putting out prior to... Uh, putting out, I want to hold your hand. I think it's. I think we need to know what was so important that the Beatles weren't being put out. Yeah. Um, well, the backstory to this briefly is that EMI had bought EMI, the British record company, had bought the American record company Capital in 1955, bought 96% of the stock, uh, and pretty much expected the American company to start putting out whatever they wanted them to put out in America. And Capital, the executives at Capital, right up to the president, uh, didn't enjoy being owned by an English parent company. Didn't enjoy being owned by anybody other than themselves. Mm. And they had this thing called the first turndown option, which meant they had first right of refusal on any British product sent to them for release. And actually, they just took that literally. They just turned down pretty much everything. Uh, and EMI in London was infuriated by this attitude, but felt they could do nothing about it because of antitrust. So, um, but Capital, to prevent there being too many difficulties, would release a few things a year. And I was really amused to discover that though they were turning down Cliff Richard and Helen Shapiro and the, the big stars of, of British pop at that time, Adam Faith, and then turning down the Beatles, this guy, Dave Dexter Jr., whose job it was to choose the record, did pick a record by an elderly, well, a middle-aged lady pianist called Mrs. Mills. <laughs> now, for anyone who knows who Mrs. Mill Richard will know Mrs. Mills oh, yeah. quite well, actually. We won't How well do you know we, 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 Well, I don't want to go into my private life, but <laughs> we go way back. But the idea of turning down the Beatles and releasing Mrs. Mills is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> um, and that... 
that was one of those moments of joy, you know, when you're in a library doing research for a book and you find something like that. You, oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> now, how many copies did that Mrs. Mills, that great Mrs. Mills millions, singles right? capital? Millions, millions. Right? It sold 72. 72 million? <laughs> 72. 72 copies. And Mark, and Mark has one, so that means there's only 71 others. I have one with me in my hotel room <laughs> yes, upstairs. So, yeah. Yeah. Mark, I, I bought um, it on eBay. Mrs. Mills bought the other 71. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it true that George Martin and Dave Dexter did not have a good relationship? No one in England had a good relationship with Dexter. Certainly George Martin didn't. Yeah. Uh, but nobody did because he was, he was brutal. He just turned down absolutely everything. They owned this company and they were being turned down. But why, why didn't um, Sir Joe Lockwood put the squeeze on them? He, he did, but they were told about this, this antitrust thing. Yeah. That you know, if you push too hard, you might have to surrender your stockholding. Uh, and they were advised by that, and their lawyer didn't challenge it, and so they, they, they just stopped short of, of doing that. Yeah. Why do you think their lawyer didn't look into right. something that was so obviously false? I mean, a, a lawyer should have known that. Even, even a lawyer who doesn't deal with American antitrust would know what antitrust was. The lawyer was a big Mrs. Mills fan. Uh. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just amazing that they could be fobbed off with that as an yeah. excuse. No yeah, I, I, I talked to a guy called Paul Marshall, who was the, the oh, foremost yeah. American music industry lawyer of the period. In fact, he was the guy who got the Beatles onto VJ right. uh, and Swan. And, um, and he said, yeah, they could have challenged that. It would never have stood up. But, but for some reason, they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think there just wasn't enough urgency on the part of the, you know, the UK company? Yeah, perhaps. But the, the Americans always said... British product doesn't sell here, and they could point to these five releases a year that they did put out and mm. say, well, look, here's proof. But in fact, there is actually a memo, an internal memoranda from Dexter to, who was the president of Livingston, yeah. president of Capital, acknowledging that when they did put out British product, they killed it immediately. Mm. They didn't, it needed support. You had to push records. And this is what Brian Epstein insisted. If you're going to release this record, you have to put 40000 or $50,000 worth of muscle behind it. And that was what got it over the cusp and into people's ears. And let's face it, Richard, if Mrs. Mills wasn't going to make it, what would make them think the Beatles would? Well, absolutely. Actually. Absolutely. I mean, she was a national phenomenon. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, is she related to Juliet Mills? <laughs> Nanny and the Professor? Juliet yeah, Mills actually Hayley sold Mills. 73 copies. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's worth going on YouTube and looking for Mrs. Mills clips because there are some, and then you'll see just how ludicrous this is. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Just sort of plonking it away at the piano, you know, this sort of yeah. buxom Like Lawrence just, Welk, yeah. you know, it's just very, and a one and Very a two. intense. Yeah. <laughs> now we okay. We've sort of dispelled the idea that the Beatles were not going to come. We've o had always heard the Beatles were only going to come here if there was a number one record, but they were going to come anyway. And they get the number one record with "I Want to Hold Your Hand," and now they're set to be on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I'll turn turn to my right. I'll look at Richard and say, "Okay, the Ed Sullivan Show happens now yeah. on this weekend. What is the immediate result? What happens here in the states? And I mean, you're you're." That you, you get to basically see what the hype has been all about, right. you know, and you hear the music. Now you actually get the charisma of these four guys, you know, together, just absolutely magnetic performers on stage. Right. And we're seeing them before they became tired of live performance. You know, we're seeing them really at their peak as live performers. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, you get them in the press conference at JFK and they've nailed it right there, haven't they? You know, with their humor. And they're just so sharp, so quick. It w you look at that and you think that must have been rehearsed or scripted. I mean, it wasn't. You know, they're just absolutely fantastic. And all four of them coming to the fore. And then 
also the weight of material. It's not like they're appearing on Sullivan, okay, yeah, they've got one hit, you know, the big hit record. But look at the other material that they're performing. That's why I don't think that America could have ignored this forever. You know, they could have done this with other British artists. But this material was just so original and so different and so vibrant. How long could America ignore it? So even if they weren't on the Ed Sullivan show, might have been on Hollywood Palace or something <laughs> else, you know. Right. I mean, Ed didn't get 73 million viewers every week. So whoever they'd have been on, they'd have got that, that you, sort of viewing figures. Do you think any other British artist could have disarmed the press like the Beatles did? No. no. I mean, who was, no. who was as big at that time? No one. I, I, well, okay, who was number two at Cl that time? Uh, Cliff Richard. Yeah, but I mean... And he had yeah. already been here. Right, yeah, but I mean, yeah. you know, look at the personalities, apart yeah. from just the music. Look at John Lennon, his humor. All four of them. There was, right. there was no British artist. Or, I don't think there were any American artists in that class either. But a lot of the questions had to do with the, the hair and, the, and money more than but the that's, music. That's the part, as Richard's saying, that's disarming the press in a way. Because but when you're you being listen confronted to the, with that... The, the press asking the questions, they're, they're, they come across, the press comes across kind of stupid. They come right. across very aggressive, actually. But yeah. stupid at the same yeah. time. Yeah, but actually this feeds back into Capital's, because um, Capital, having been forced to take the Beatles, still didn't understand what it was they'd taken. They thought they'd taken a five-minute fad, and they were going to milk it as much as they possibly could for that short period of time when it would be big before it popped. And their whole campaign was based on the hairstyles. It still wasn't about the music of these guys. Right. Uh, and here was a rare example. It's the only time, actually, that the Beatles were ever subjected to hype, and this was Capital's campaign. But as soon as the Beatles arrived here and people heard them, saw them, and were disarmed by them, the hype thing disappeared off the agenda except in the minds of newspaper men and broadcasters who continued to be very disparaging about the Beatles for the whole of 1964 in America. Fantastic interview. You can find it on YouTube at the uh, Washington Coliseum in the afternoon before they played their first show in the States. The guy is incredibly rude and condescending to, to them. And they are so much above him. And they're so w aware of what it is he's doing. And they just kind of dismantle it. Not in a very rude way. but And amongst themselves, you can see that they've, they've got the measure of this guy. And they're just going to ride it. And, um, but that attitude did prevail for a very long time here. And that was, again, I would say Capital's fault. You know, Capital marketed the wrong thing. Right, but by the time they had arrived here, if I'm not mistaken, in the UK, there was already a certain respect level being given them. I would imagine by the press as well. They'd been received number, numerous honors. So they were sort of above this kind of approach from the press, if I'm not mistaken, right, for the most part? They'd endured it in England as well. But um, it was easy to overcome in England because we all kind of speak the same language. Right. Um, where, and there was right. a definitely a, a difference between the, re the reception in America and the media reaction particularly. And, and there was already notice being taken of their music in the British yeah. press, of course, yeah. the famous William Mann you know, review. So there was that level. There was the whole Beatlemania hype thing, the yeah, 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 and mm. you know, the mop tops. But there was also, their music was now getting taken seriously because they'd had hit after hit, don't forget. You know, yeah. They'd already had several hits by the time they'd reached the States. Interestingly enough, you bring up the yeah, 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 and we were noticing this upon watching the Ed Sullivan appearance the first time or, you know, watching it recently, the first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show, there was none of the head shaking that, that had already become the stereotype. And they talked about the, the huh. But there was none of that woo head shake that you sort of always heard, you know, oh. the, the press goofing on. And that doesn't happen in the Ed Sullivan show. I think this she loves you. Uh, 
a little, but it's not. It's not that it's not exaggerated. Prevalent. It's you almost see it more in the in the British clips from the end of '63. It was almost as though they reined it back. It seemed like a little bit on the solid. Do you think show. they were embarrassed by that here? Until they found out they can get girls doing that. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. I don't think they I were think embarrassed actually, by much. I think actually anything. on the first Sullivan show they look a little nervous to me. Yes. John especially, yeah. of, of all oh, people. Yeah, yeah George looks like he's enjoying himself. Yeah. yeah. Well, he yeah. was on a lot of codeine from the cold. Am I on Ed Sullivan? I don't know. One, one, <laughs> one, one thing I wanted to bring up from the press conference, well, there was a line that John said that no one picked up on. I've got the question, but John responded, yeah, and we're deaf and dumb too. Yeah. And are you bald? Are you bald? Yeah. yeah. The question was, yeah. are you bald? Oh, and he okay. said, yeah, and we're deaf and dumb too. Okay. When I, when I heard that, because I hadn't heard the press conference in a long time, I was shocked that the press didn't jump on that. And, and you know, here they're, they're really having fun with the press at the same time, but here's John getting very sarcastic. Yeah, but, but, but a, hold on. What about the press picking up on him, telling people to shut up? Right. But that's different. They were telling right. Murray the K. You know? Yeah, but, no, but, who, who, no, what, but which other artists can you think of who would get away with that at that time? There was no one doing that. Pete Townsend was, wasn't here yet. So. <laughs> You know. I think it was a method of delivery. I mean, it didn't come across angry. It just came across as a quip. And they were yeah. full of quips on that. Right, right. Mm. Yeah. You watched rehearsals from the... Second show. Second yeah. show. Shut up while he's talking. Yeah, yeah he was telling us as if he stop screaming and he'd say, clap your hands and shut up. But, and, and also, watch John's comic timing when he says, shut up. He then immediately kind of points to Paul with a little smile as if, say, listen to him. You know, mm. but it's done with real humor. He's got fantastic comic timing. Mm. And George said, I'll play if you want me to play. And I, I won't yeah. play. Yeah. <laughs> a few years early. But well, no. you notice on, on the Swedish TV appearance, which we've seen, there's the, the last cut before it's introduced. <clears throat> Paul is talking, and John is obviously doing what would be known as his, like, the cripple thing, where the spastic thing, where he's clapping his hands and stamping his feet. And the camera does not go to him at all. Paul is going, yeah, you know, like that. You know, yeah, you know. And you don't see what John's doing, but you have to wonder whether or not maybe they were wise enough to not go to that for whatever reason. But you by know. the way, Tony, we actually have two British guys on the panel here, yes. so you can't use your British accent. Oh, sod off. <laughs> anyway. But, but, but I'm, I'm, I just want to, you know, we're, we've now sort of talked a bit about what happened with the S. Sullivan Show. And Richard, you sort of automatically kind of qualified the idea by saying, okay, if they had not done Sullivan, maybe it would have been Hollywood Palace. But would it have been prearranged by that time? And I guess where, where I'm going is, by the time they'd arrived in the States, if I'm not mistaken, Hard Day's Night was already lined up. Am I right? They were already yeah. talking about the, you know, making a film. More than that, they, it, was in, it was in pre-production. Yeah. Okay. So they, yeah. and, and in fact, the reason why we really, if I'm not mistaken, why we didn't have a tour immediately after Ed Sullivan and, and the few appearances they did was because they were going back to begin work on A Hard Day. The filming in March 64 was um, arranged before the U.S. trip in, in right. I mean, that, that was arranged in October and the U.S. trip came up in November. Right. right. Now, so I do have a question set. about that. If they had arranged that back then, mm. the story we always heard is that United Artists wanted the soundtrack album. But the album was only released on United Artists in the States, and Beatlemania hadn't hit the States yet. I yeah. always wondered about that. The deal was that United Artists would get the publishing, and they would get the soundtrack album for the USA. But yeah. Beatlemania hadn't hit yet, so how did they know it was going to hit? <laughs> they didn't. They didn't. But there was a fair chance that it would. Right. Uh, especially by the, the film was agreed in October, and the film was going to come out the following summer. 
So there was a fair chance it would have done. So can we say that United Artists was a little bit more visionary than Capital was at that Far point? More. Far there more. There you go. Far no, more. but interesting. But it also means that when they arrived in America, they had four record companies pushing them, or four companies pushing them. Uh, in fact, five, because they had Capital, VJ, Swan, United Artists, who had a vested interest in making sure the trip went well. And they had CBS TV, who were keen on pushing the Sullivan aspect of it. So they had five corporate entities all pushing this visit. And don't forget the little-known fact that Mrs. Mills actually auditioned uh, for Shake. Yes. Didn't get the job. <laughs> I, I can see that you really got a thing for Mrs. Mills, haven't you? <laughs> I thought that was you. <laughs> but let's we do have what, a whole Mrs. Mills episode we're going to be doing. I thought it was you three. Let's do a what-if. Uh, yeah. Seriously. Can I just say one thing, actually? Just that, you know, you're talking about John on the Ed Sullivan shows maybe not being quite as to the fore as you'd you know, be used to. Also is noticeable the Washington Coliseum concert. He doesn't introduce one number. Right, that's wow. true. Which, which is that's really, right. you know, you sort of think that must have been prearranged. Right. Don't know why. And he any wow. Really yeah. Right. So that's true. Well, you know. But I do want to have a question for you. Um, yeah. As far as the movie, if the Beatles don't do well on the Sullivan show, let's assume, and doing what ifs, does A Hard Day's Night become a hit anyway? Because um, it took America to make that a hit too. I mean, but does, you know, again, yeah, well, speculation. I hate speculating. It certainly would have been a big film in Britain yeah. uh, and other territories around the world that were beginning to get the Beatles because it wasn't just America. It was various other places as well. But obviously it was great that, that they were huge in America because UA is essentially an American company, but it was the British arm making it. But it, yeah, it, it all helped. But the film would have still been a success in the UK. But would it have been a film success such as maybe... Uh, ferry Cross the Mersey, or would having it have been... Having a wild weekend, or, or having, yeah, you know. something like that. <laughs> yeah. Would it have been as big on par with those other Mersey movies, so to speak? Um, well, it would have. It would have always had the, uh, the quality that it has, because it was always far apart, those other kind of pop films of the, of the period. Okay. And, and, and actually, I think it would have been whether... massive, because they were just so red-hot in Britain. So regardless of the U.S., it would have been massive in Britain. But with they regards to the States... too, so they, they, they had a, a North American foothold. As, as people actually have been writing to me to remind me that in Canada, all these re the, the first records did come out. Right. Uh, capital of right. Canada. Right. Um, I guess the question would be whether having a wild weekend would have been made if Hard oh, Day's right. Night right. was <laughs> not <laughs> such a big... Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. But question. I guess just thinking that had Hard Day's Night been the, been the first, you know, British musical artists film and there had never been an Ed Sullivan and there had never been the yeah. chance but I mean you're also then assuming that no, there wouldn't no, have been a press conference we had British artist films yeah. Cliff Richard had already That's been right. in, in some hit movies in Britain They've now been... had those done anything in the States at all? no no no. no okay no but they've been big in Britain because he was big in Britain you but know, people, there... people aren't looking to what's happening right, across right. the Atlantic right. if he's a big star at home they'll go and see the film but yeah. would there been any reason to think that A Hard Day's Night and I'm, I'm saying this just as a double advocate, would have broken here in the States when the Cliff Richard films had not. Of course it would. Just because of the quality of the music and the artistry? It's you're saying? One of the, I think it's one of the best movies ever made. Yeah. yeah. I'm, okay. I'm with Roger Ebert. You know? well, okay. Without the Beatles okay. being big, the film would have just played here like the Cliff Richard films played here. They did come here. I mean, in October 62, when the Beatles released Love Me Do, Cliff Richard, at that very time, was in, a, in New York because Paramount Pictures were pushing his British film called The Young Ones. Right. Only here they retitled it, It's Wonderful to be Young. 
um, which, which was really strange because the Young Ones title song was the world's biggest selling song that year, but the American corporate America felt that it wouldn't work in America. And that was was that Dave the, Dexter again? I'm sorry. That was always the kind of thing. Well, it's a little bit like um, my US publishers feeling that no one here would buy the extended edition of my book. <laughs> Who would buy it? Who would yeah, buy it? Yeah, because, yeah. because the market isn't, you know, they can't be sure of the market. But, you know, there is always that element of doubt, or there can be that element of doubt. I, I have a question, though. But as far as the Sullivan show, most people don't know that the third show is actually taped before the first show. Right. right? So all the mics, the vocals, are, the mixes are great. What happened a couple of hours later that John's mic was just gone pretty much for most of the, the lead? You really hear George and Paul yeah. on the She Loves You, and you don't, you don't really hear him on I Want to Hold Your Hand. Everybody yeah. thought Paul sang the lead. Yeah. I mean, what could have possibly happened in those couple of hours? Well, Ringo tells a story, but I, I think it relates to the 65 Sullivan show of, of them rehearsing and getting all the settings exactly how they wanted it. And then, as he says it, some woman came in with a duster <laughs> and changed all the markings on the, on the mixing desk, and that was the end of that. I think it was Mrs. Dexter, wasn't it? <laughs> no, it was Mrs. Mills. She was always back. Well, she was a cleaning lady by then, back. you know. <laughs> 72 copies get you a cleaning it, job. It, it's <laughs> conceivable that um, A Hard Day's Night could have been made without them having a big success in the Sullivan show Hard Day's Night could have been made in the UK been imported here as a, a curiosity people could have seen it and said hey these guys are really funny and the music's not bad either and they could then have become in demand in the United States on the basis of yeah. the film it's possible yeah. but, it, it, but the, the movie if we're going through this what if bit um, it wouldn't have had the, <laughs> the, the, the clout behind it so it would have just played a B feature probably in some drive-in in Albuquerque yeah. And that probably would have been about it. I, I have, I have a. They would have been number one in Albuquerque. I have a statement. Number two my friend behind Vinny, Mrs. Mills. My friend Vinny's a, a big Stones fan, and, and he knows I'm a big Beatles fan. He always says to me, "If the Stones had got on an earlier flight, it would have been the Stones, not the Beatles." But in a way, I know that. But in a way, have you, have you ever seen Charlie Watts answering questions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you ever tried to listen to Keith no, Richards but, answering a but question? But let's say it was someone else besides the Beatles who, you know, sort of beat the plane, you know, got an earlier plane, so to speak. What would they have done when they got here? What engagements would they have had? Well, but right. if it was about the music, because the music came here first. The, the, the press conference happened, obviously, when they arrived, but the music arrived first. Yeah. So let's say, the, you know, the music had won over, we'll, we won't say it's the Stones, but some other band. You know, Herman's Hermits. Yeah. Herman's Hermits, yeah. Yeah, what happened if it was that? You know, but, but I, it, it, could, it couldn't have been without, else. You know, the, much as I love the Stones and Herman's Hermits and all that, you know, <laughs> you love Herman's I, I mean, Hermits, and, and I do. <laughs> I um, the fact is that without the Beatles to imitate those bands, we had really <laughs> yeah. nothing to do. But it's, and that includes the Stones. I mean, right. if you look at these Stones' yeah. early career. While the Beatles were still together, everything the Beatles did, they did a few months later. And once the Beatles broke up, they went back to being Chuck Berry, but a bit more high tech. <laughs> yeah! Wow! Can I do? Whoa. Can I do my? Can I do the the I'm John Lennon cop again? The, the Chris Chris Guest magical misery tour thing. The, yeah. <laughs> and Mick Jagger, I think that he's a joke with all this. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> not gonna touch that. The Beatles would actually be doing, you know, all my love in second verse, same as the first. <laughs> But, but I have to go to, to what Richard was saying, too, and that, and that with A Hard Day's Night, though, you know, the difference between, and again, you're absolutely right, it probably would have been a B film in terms of where it played. But I have to agree, uh, combining it with what Alan was saying, where with the personalities, 
with the um, the fact that okay, granted, it was scripted, but it certainly didn't didn't look scripted. I mean, as you were saying, no, the press conferences were not scripted. But a hard day's night, you could tell that this really was the personalities of these you know four guys. Obviously, an exaggerated mm-hmm. version. I think that hard day's night may have ended up being a substantial breakthrough moment for them had there not been an Ed Sullivan show. And, and you know, the thing about hard day's night as well, it's done in that kind of pseudo-documentary fashion. Mm. And it suits their personalities. They're down-to-earth guys. You know, it's not the glossy Elvis type thing where they're winning the next car race or, you know, <laughs> brain surgeon. That was the one after Clambake, right? Know, yeah, really. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, everything just comes together, doesn't it? I mean, even if the characterizations are a bit kind of corny, yeah. But it does, as you said, it still taps into their true personalities. Right. And it's got that sort of earthy feel to it, and it matches the music and matches their personalities. So, Mark, what, when you saw, uh, uh, Richard, uh, I don't know how old you are, so I'm not going to insult you. You're going to be 55 in March. All right, so, so you're too young so to have seen the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Mark, when, when you, when in Britain, when you, saw, when you heard of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, I mean, obviously, it must have hit a few days later or whatever. What did you over there think <clears throat> number one we never saw the show uh, or even any clips from it oh. I, I never saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show until the video age when people began to trade things in fact it was Richard who gave me the tape or showed me the tape of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show for the first time we were not particularly hung up on the Sullivan show but but the, the Beatles immensity in America the, the fantastic reception that America gave a British act for the first time was a, obviously therefore a breakthrough thing and it was big, big headlines. The Beatles' reception in America generally was what the headlines were about, not the Sullivan Show. Uh, Mark knows this, that um, big night out with Mike and Bernie Winters, their appearance. I remember watching that. Um, my father and you know, was watching it with me. And there's the skit there where they arrive back at the airport and the customs officials say, you know, open your cases. And my father, before they opened the cases, he said, it's going to be money inside. And that was, you know, that was what it was like for us in Britain. It was like, my God, the money they must be making. They've made it in America. And it's not like we hadn't had film stars who hadn't made it in America. But for, you know, a pop act on that scale, that was the atmosphere back in the UK. As as Mark said, it wasn't about the Ed Sullivan show. It's just that these guys have gone over big in in America. Now, you hadn't seen the the Sullivan shows there, but... You were, as it happened, of the airport receptions, of things like that, of what had happened. In terms of news, just international news. Oh, yeah. Well, the Beatles traveled with uh, British journalists who were reporting for the press back home for radio, television, and particularly for the print, you know, for the newspapers. So we we knew well. I mean, you can look back in the libraries, and there's a lot of coverage of the Beatles in America. But it's more about the Plaza Hotel. It's more about... um, the train journey to Washington, it's more about their tr- when they went out in Central Park and photographs were taken, and particularly the airport. You know, the people are waiting for them at the airport. Mm. But it's less about, Carnegie Hall barely gets a mention. It's less about mm. what they did here rather than just the reception they got. That was the news because it was just like, how come they've gone down so well? Right. Well, not how come because right. actually we knew how well, we knew why because they'd done it in Britain first. But it was more about, isn't it incredible? A British actor's gone to America and done this. They love him as much as we do. Right. And that was completely right. new. Right. And to play devil's advocate, of course, that reception happened before the Ed Sullivan show yeah. had actually occurred. So yeah. right off the bat, yeah. you know, yeah. we were primed. We were primed. The States were primed. 
It was a bit so, like us, you know, the British man winning Wimbledon. You know, right. it's like, right. my God, it's actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that when I looked at that, that whole week is that they actually filmed the Washington, D.C. concert, that they thought ahead somehow someone said, hey, let, I know why it was recorded because it was part of the Beach Boys and uh, who's the other artist? Uh, Leslie Gore. Leslie Gore. Gore. Uh, and it was part of a triple feature, so to speak, of music artists. But the fact that that was actually recorded is, is kind of amazing because I think it really captured how the Beatles were just absorbing America. You know, you know, Mitch always talks about it. You know, Ringo's drumming on that is incredible. He is the happiest drummer in the world, even if he has to be his own roadie. <laughs> uh, yeah, well. And he is just, just having a ball out of all the Beatles. Yeah. Of that day, but the fact that they actually said, "Hey, let's record it." We always talk about, "Oh, we wish they'd recorded Carnegie Hall." Well, the Carnegie Hall show is basically the same show. Well, the reason why they did that is they were actually anticipating gore mania. Was really what they were looking forward to. <laughs> Al Gore. Al Gore. No, Leslie. The internet anyway. was. A... But Alan, let me. You actually, I mean, you wrote the book. How I want to hold your hand changed everything. You did you see the Sullivan Show? Sure. Okay. What did you immediately think? I mean, you're, you're American. I'm, I'm not going to ask your passport, but I know you're American. Ask him. I ask him. <laughs> wow. Uh-oh. I need to see I your passport. I don't have it on me. You don't have it on you. We'll, we'll show it to your lady. We'll all come to your house, everybody. <laughs> no, but when you saw the Sullivan Show, I was two years old. I know I saw it. But I really? Was there. Yeah. Hmm. I'm, I'm very young. But when you saw the show, what, what knocked you out? I mean, you obviously talk about I want to hold your hand in your book. Yeah. Uh, you focus on that, but what knocked you out? I don't know if I was knocked out. I mean, I was nine. And um, actually, I kind of liked it. I thought it was interesting. Uh, it tended to be among nine-year-olds that uh, the girls really liked it and the guys sort of were a little suspicious of it and yet within a week after the Sullivan show we were all in our friends basements with mops you know making oh, believe we had and playing the records and uh, if our and, and beetle wigs and the whole deal uh, and, and not is there a photo of this Alan? Uh, no, <laughs> yes there is oh I forgot <laughs> was here it'll, it'll be online later yes, unless it's going to be on Facebook any day <laughs> But, but uh, <laughs> what were you listening to right before A Hard Day's Night, before the Beatles made Bobby it up? Well, I mean, I was, I was sort of doing <laughs> classical music, you know. I was, I was taking <laughs> piano lessons and... Um, Mozart. You know, yeah, like that. And I mean, in, in, my, in my earlier book, uh, which is called From the Cavern to the Rooftop, um, uh, in the intro I talk about how, uh, you know, apart from the Ed Sullivan show, I mean, I was still a little bit agnostic about it um, <laughs> through that spring. You know, so they're here in February. I'm down in the basement with my friends making believe we're Beatles for a while, but I'm still a little, you know, not totally sold. Um, until one day after a piano lesson, I'm waiting in the spring, I'm waiting for my father to come and collect me. And my piano teacher, my piano teacher's father had been one of the last students of Franz Liszt. And wow. so in her house, she wow. had these frames with Liszt cigar butts in them and <laughs> all kinds of Liszt memorabilia. That's where Ringo um, got the Liszt mania. That's, that's right. There is a Beatle connection. Nothing go. is Beatle proof. Liszt mania. Uh. Um, and I, I had come out from one of these lessons. My father was going to pick me up um, in front of her house in this. Um, a uh, car drove by, a convertible with high school kids in it and the top down and it was, you know, they had girls and the whole deal and She Loves You was blasting out of the radio and they were all singing. And it's like, you know, Fantastic. you're a nine-year-old kid and it's like, wow, 
cars, girls, music, fun, you know, that just that, that instant girls. Wait, girls, nine years old girls? Well, uh, as Woody Allen says, I well, think hey. I don't think I don't. Wow, we've so, uh, just gone downhill. You know, well, I mean, we've that, lost Woody Allen as a listener. I think that I think that image sold me, you know, uh, more than anything. And I'm thinking, you know, like, who really cares about list cigar butts? Look at all this. <laughs> Got beetle so, butts. You know. So yeah, it was it was kind of it was kind of a slow sell. But after that, I was completely sold on it. And, uh, Never well, was the there anything over here in the U.S. about Stones fans versus Beatles fans? Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was that just yeah. the U.S., yeah. Richard? Was that just the U.S.? I, I mean, I thought no, that no, no, was... No, uh, no, no. I thought that was Oldham's creation, you know. Yeah, no, that was in the U.K. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to know if it was like... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah there yeah, were absolutely. magazines, the Stones versus the Beatles. Yeah, sure, and then later it was the... Yeah. The bootleg, yeah. yeah was, but to be fair, there was also a bootleg album of the Beatles versus Don Ho, so, you know, yeah. Hey, and know, Paul actually I had the, the, and the Beatles the versus the Four Seasons <laughs> and the Third the Reich too. But you know, <laughs> to go to go to go back for a moment to the idea of Sullivan and how the Beatles were were treated here in the States versus a lot of the music that had gone before. You've got Ed Sullivan, who you know we've all talked amongst one another about this, but Sullivan sort of knew what he had. Obviously, by this point, he treats them with a certain amount of respect. Jump to something like a, a Hollywood Palace, and uh, notoriously, Hollywood Palace would condescend. Well, Dino with the stones. Dino with yeah. the stones. Yeah. yeah. If anyone, you know, there's a famous thing of Dean Martin rolling his eyes. Well, I've been rolling. I've been stoned too. Uh, here's the Rolling Stones. <laughs> you know, and the guys, buff, you know, who own Buffalo and half of Springfield. You know, I mean, a, a show like Hollywood Palace always would condescend. Do you know? Do you think obviously the way the Beatles were treated upon their arrival here? Would that certainly have had, or do you just think that they would have barreled? Yeah, I think they'd have cut through everything. I think they'd have cut through everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they did. They they did cut through everything, and um, I think on the Hollywood Palace show, it was just it was the way they did that the kind of thing, you know, putting people down. But also, the Stones got the kickback from the Beatles because if the public in the, in America were going to accept the Beatles, they were not going to accept the guys who had even longer hair. Right. Mm. So you read the American right. press again from 1964, and you can see, well, the Beatles are, you know, bad for their hair, but these guys are really bad. And they were, <laughs> they became like, if we're going to accept the Beatles, we can't accept the Stones. So the Stones got a very rough ride here in the media. Well, it was that whole idea over here of, you know, would you allow your daughter to marry a Beatle? And then it was, would you allow your daughter to even date a Rolling Stone? You know, it yeah. was always taken to the end. Yeah. They were. Yeah, yeah, one could say that absolutely intentional as Stones would have that dirty Marketed image. as the antithesis of the And there was Tom yeah. Wolfe, uh, the, the, where the Beatles want to hold your yeah. hand and the Stones want to burn down your town. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, these are just lines from, from witty writers, and I right. think they, they get quoted forever, but I'm not sure they actually affect the mass of people at the time. I think it's just something yeah, that goes not. into the books. Yeah. Not in terms of the, they didn't affect the people, you know, our age who were buying the records and were buying yeah. both Beatles and Stones records. Mm. And the only thing that we had to say about the Stones was that they copied what the Beatles did three months later every yeah. time. Well, <laughs> but if you, Until but if, 1971, apparently. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but if you look at the old Stones footage, in documentaries, there's so much fighting going on in the audience, uh, chairs being thrown. I mean, the worst at a Beatles concert was you know, little girls were urinating. I mean, uh, right. but it wasn't you know total so, mayhem. But it's, it's it's also interesting when you see the 
Beatles with other artists, like on the special on the Sullivan Show, they stand out so much. But when you see the Stones playing like on the Tammy Show, yeah, they don't stand. They out, don't stand right. out the way. Right. Someone else on that. Well, show. the Beatles had Topo Gigio against them, you but, know, not. Uh, yeah, plus the Stones came on after James Brown on right. the Tammy yeah. show. I mean, what can you do? Talk right. about a guilty <laughs> denouement. Yeah. 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 But also, I don't think that the Stones' personalities were as well defined as the Beatles. You know, now we all kind of know the Stones, but I mean, what was the differentiation between Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts in the eyes of the general public? <laughs> right. You know? Right. And, and so that's the thing with the Beatles. It was like. Each one ha had appeal to you know various sections of, of the general public. Right. I just don't think the Stones had that kind of all-encompassing appeal. Yeah. Absolutely. No other English act could have come on and been on the Sullivan Show before the Beatles. You know, the, the thing you posed earlier, if it, were, if it wasn't them, it might have been somebody else, but there wasn't anybody else. Mm -hmm. Only the Beatles could have commanded a place on an American TV show in the end of 1963. There was nobody right. else. Right. And even, you know, in your uh, talk earlier today, you were talking about the fact that Really, the, a few of the major English records that had broken previously had been instrumentals. Yeah. So that yeah. takes away from the idea of a group being able to really kind of express themselves in any real personal way, yeah. I guess. I mean, you, would the tell stars have been that impressive? If we brought no, not at all. Time? Not at all. You just got to look at the three number ones in America at the end of 63 and 64 just to see. You know, Dominica by the Singing Nun which was the fastest-selling record in American 45s to that time, uh, followed by There I've Said It Again by Bobby Vinton, which really does sound like 1949 and not 1963-64. And, and then suddenly, and that was... you know, no electric guitars in any of that. Right. You know, right. And then suddenly, bam, it's the Beatles. I mean, they look fantastic. They sound fantastic. They're so witty. Girls fall in love with them. Boys admire them the mops very quickly. <laughs> well, that was it, Alan. It's, it's actually really fantastic. Um, among the research I've been doing is how musical instrument sales boomed in the wake of the Beatles' arrival. First of all, in 1963, in England, guitar sales went absolutely through the roof. Yes. And then in America, in 1964, guitar sales went absolutely through the roof and drums and all the other things you'd need to form a band. So... Where was the electric guitar in American pop before the Beatles? I mean, it's not saying that there wasn't, it, it wasn't there at all, but the popularizers by a very long distance were the Beatles. And, right. and mop sales just and went through the roof. Mop sales, Cleaning mop, products. people were buying them also, just to use them. <laughs> and also just, you know, to see the kind of class of the Beatles, look at the end of the Washington Coliseum show and how, you know, they end with, was it Twist and Shout and Long Tall Sally? They're bringing American rock and roll back to a, a U.S. audience, and they're absolutely nailing it. Oh, yeah. You know, it, this oh, isn't yeah. just a covers band. They're you know, adding a whole new dimension yeah, to it. Absolutely fantastic. And yeah. how many of the kids in the audience at the Washington Coliseum would have even known of Long Tall Sally? Because it was a hit in 56 for, well, Little Richard, right. but really for Pat Boone. Yeah. Many yeah. of these girls were only have been in their absolute infancy in 1956. I, I, I have a question concerning how Brian Epstein kept them away, so to speak, in America. Think about the tour, uh, when they first came, was only like a week and a half, two weeks. The summer tour was very short. They, they didn't seem to spend a lot of time in America. Previous obligations, though, I think, Ron. Like you say, hard days. And yeah, night. but, it, the but at the same time, month, it, it seemed it? like they, it was there was, there was, they didn't spend a long t amount of time in America. And I, was, I was wondering I if that was tours were that long Brian Epstein's thinking to make it short and sweet, so to speak. Oh, maybe. Well, their diary was full. By the end of 63, their 64 diary was pretty much filled in. 
Um, there was a month in August, September 64 when they could come here, but otherwise, you know, they couldn't have stayed longer because they had other things to do. Because right. they would make more money in America on a tour than in Great Britain. They made money, but, you know, the U.S. tax, the inland revenue didn't want to uh, allow them to take it out of the country. Mm. So that became a very big problem for the Beatles. Uh, there was a tax treaty between the U.K. and the U.S., so the Beatles were making so much money on that tour that they actually, the U.S. Inland Internal Revenue Service, disregarded the tax treaty and said, you can't take it out without us taxing you at source. Wow. Wow. It became another, part, another problem for Brian, who, who was finding that they were earning all this money on paper, but they couldn't actually get their hands on it. So hence, the, hence as we're saying, that brown, those brown bags of cash that some promoters would be able to provide. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the least of it, though. And, and also, too, I would think, Rob, too, that it would literally be taking quite a gamble to have to pre-book that 64 tour you know, you were really gambling that sure, Beatlemania but, but was going to happen. Time, if I mean, you, you if know. it's that hot, usually you say, let's try to make as much money as possible. But I would think, as you're saying, yeah, just to, Mark, pre-obligations in, in France, and you know, there were whole European sure. tours afterwards. Well. Yeah, yeah, making the film. I mean, that, that, was, that was why they had to. They stayed longer in America than they were planning to because they spent more time in Miami. They were originally going to leave on, I think, the 17th of February mm. and stayed until, what was it, the 21st, 22nd, right? But all the same, actually, that's another thing in the Maisels film, which we haven't mentioned yet, but that fantastic yeah. film that the Maisels brothers yeah. made. Yeah. People say, oh, they, they, they shot it on the train and that's how they got the idea for A Hard Day's Night. But that's just pure coincidence. It was being made that way anyway. It was already scripted to begin on a train. Mm. It just happened. That's how much Alan Owen's script was measuring there, was imitating their real life. Because in a way, before they got to shoot the fictional version, they shot a real life version of it. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, I was watching a documentary called The Mercy Beat that was done in uh, 1963, Mark? The BBC yeah. one, The, the Mercy BBC Sound. One. Mercy yeah. Sound, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a great scene in that where there's a, a gentleman who's sort of a talking head talking about how the teenagers set the trends. The teens set the trends. Yes. And, it, and all I could think of watching that was the scene in A Hard Day's Night. Chicky baby, you know, where, oh. you know, you're the trendsetters, you know, yes. and, and, I, you, and you have to say it's exactly art imitating life, yeah. you know. That is a fantastic scene, and, and the bit that I really like about that, well, one of so many, is where the actor, Kenneth Haig, he says, no, perhaps it's the, uh, you know, what is it, the early clue to the new direction, <laughs> and then he checks the calendar to say, oh, no, 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 we're not due another craze for another few weeks yet. <laughs> Fantastic and that was writing. The mentality. And that yeah. also points to the idea that in so many of the press conferences, you were still getting the instance of, so how long do you think this is all going to last? And you, you had the responses from, from George, you know, well, you know, we'd be lucky if we get three months, you know. I mean, I'm, he's yeah. doing it again. I know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now you've got to talk like a New Yorker. <laughs> Something right. else I think is worth mentioning about the Maisel Brothers film is how it captures nearing the end of a rock era. You know, in terms of you see the Beatles packing their own suitcases yeah. and uh, you see <clears throat> girls in the front row at the Washington Coliseum concert just with microphones, bootlegging yeah. Yeah. openly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh, there's, there's pictures. Alan, of were you there? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, had the mop there's pictures of <laughs> Carnegie Hall with people with the cameras shooting yes. uh, film, Super yeah. 8 film, and yeah. we're saying, yeah. where is that film? And it's yeah. great. It's like a whole other era, isn't it? It would disappear yeah. very soon. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Carnegie Hall was also a union thing, which uh, was why right. it wasn't you know, filmed. Intended as yeah. a live album. Or intended as a live film originally? Or? Yeah, a live album. George Martin was yeah. over to record it for Capitol. Right. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. It wasn't well, done. It wasn't done. No. Yeah. Because of the happened. union issues. Do we and that's the only thing from questions? that trip for which there's yeah. no audio or, or video. Amazing. And, and until Very they find few that woman. pictures, too. I until mean, they find that woman with the, with yeah. the camera on with stage. The camera although, on but she's yeah. shooting them from the back. It's funny, though. People would bring Wallensack reel to reel concerts. You literally would see 25 pound reel to reel machines. With an open reel machine. Yeah, they're sitting on her lap, like actually doing that. Yeah, where are these people? Well, Remember well, the, the well, Memphis show a couple of years ago film, so came out? The, in 66, someone recorded the, the Memphis show in the Wallensack, and then yeah. they tried to sell it to Apple, and basically Apple said, you know, mm. well, what are we going to do with this? I, I don't know why they just didn't use their iPhones. Anyway, <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to throw it out to, if, you know, if we can keep it sort of within the vein of the area and time period that we're talking about, uh, we'll throw it out to, some, uh, to a Q&A to the audience. Can this I just mention one other oh, thing? Ahead, Since we were talking sorry. before about press conferences, my all-time favorite press conference question and answer um, I think it was August 65 in Minneapolis. A reporter asks George how, or asks them all how they can sleep with such long hair. And George <laughs> responds, how do you sleep with your arms and legs still attached? <laughs> <laughs> That's just the best answer. Yeah. Did he answer, it's just a flesh wound. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> that gentleman right there had his hand up in the third row. Gentleman just brought up a good point of saying that... Uh, Hadn't Brian, Ep uh, Brian Epstein been offered the option to have the Beatles perform at Madison Square Garden by Sid Bernstein? Now, was that to and move it from the Carnegie Hall to Madison Square Garden? No, this would have been an additional oh, show. Okay, I wasn't yeah. Sure so we do that. we do know that that definitely that yeah, offer well, did occur. Uh, we only have Sid's word to to to, to go on, but uh, I'm I'm pretty sure it happened. But Brian, I, I'm pretty sure. I think he knew how big it was going to be. But I think that the the adage "less is more" is probably the one he was going for then. He right. had an, think, an, an interesting yeah. attitude about what was the proper thing to do and not wanting to overexpose them. Yeah. Um, in, in Chuck Gunderson's book about the tours, have you been through that? I mean, there, there are documents um, that Nat Weiss put together um, for the 1964 tour. Um, and among the venues he proposed in 64 was Shea Stadium. Mm -hmm. Um, and he proposed a deal where they were going to play at Freedom Land three shows a day. Co-op City. Yeah, yeah to, uh, and, yeah. And, wow. and play for 200,000 people in those three shows a day. And Brian turned all that down on the grounds that it was too much, too big, not what he thought they should do. You should explain what Freedom Land is for people who yeah, don't people know. Freedom Land was the amusement park. best place. <laughs> and no bias is you're a journalist, Mr. It was Cozen. only open for four <laughs> years. It was an amusement park. It was years. an amusement yes. park. Uh, In the with, Bronx. Yeah, with, you know, recreations of the Old West and boat rides. And it, it, Precursor right. to the World's Fair, sure. And then it became yeah. Co-op City Bronx. Yeah. Different yeah, kind of you know, Chuck in his uh, talk this afternoon at the New York Public Library likened it to Disneyland, but I'm not sure it was quite Disneyland. No. It was yeah. it was more historical. But didn't Palisades have the rides and Palisades have the fun? I'm sorry. <laughs> so come on over, Tony. Uh, Palisades wow. has the rides. I'm sorry. In uh, the third row there, oh. that, that nice person right there. How do you know she's nice? I, I'm assuming she's here oh. at one of our presentations. Oh, you're very nice. There you go. So the question being, if uh, we're talking about a what-if scenario here, we're talking about the effect that the Beatles had on the R&B and Motown music of the time, and vice versa. Obviously, the Beatles were huge supporters of Motown, so 
tossing that out. Uh, and, you know, Mark, well, you, you bring a point out. Well, one thing, uh, Smokey Robinson was recently asked uh, something along those lines because he wrote, you've really got a hold on me. And he said that was like the biggest paycheck he got at the time just because the Beatles covered that. Uh, and he also has said, and, and, and Mark has a better story also, but he also said that if you think about it, the Beatles covering Motown, Motown 63, 64 was still on its way up. And it was a, a big thing financially for the company because they got all the, the, the publishing money coming in. So that was part of it. Yeah, and actually, I just want to cut in there. That Le, I interviewed Lamont Dozier, you know, um, a couple of times and uh, part of the Holland Dozier Holland mm -hmm. songwriting production team. And he said it was very much, from their perspective at Motown, a friendly rivalry with the Beatles. It kind of really spurred them on. You know, like they're turning out these great hits and we're competing with them. Right, right. And held their own, no less. Yeah. M Mark, you, you bring up a good <clears throat> point in the book about the Beatles' BBC appearances when it comes to exposure of, uh, of R&B music in the UK um, with yeah. the Beatles. Yeah, um, on the Beatles' very first radio broadcast, which was before they had a recording contract, they performed Please Mr. Postman um, by um, the Marvelettes. And I thought well, there can't have been many times when a, a Motown song had been played on, B on BBC radio before. So I decided to go through the BBC program index records, looking at the log sheets for every single show on every day, and actually found that this was the very first time any song from Motown had been played on British radio. Mm. Yeah. So, and I'm sure the Beatles themselves never knew that. Also, one more thing about Motown and the Beatles. Paul McCartney uh, was very interested in, in James Jamison's bass playing, mm. and he would say to the EMI engineers, "And you know, why can't my bass have that bass sound?" And you know, sort of push the sound a little bit too that way. Yeah, well, they were they were afraid that the needles were going to jump off right. the records. Actually, and, and then this one. Yeah, the re recording engineers I know at Abbey Road they actually went on a jaunt to the U.S. and you know were listening to U.S. records because the, the mixing was hotter over yeah. here. It was yeah. a hotter sound. Yeah. yeah. And the Beatles yeah. would be bringing American 45s in, saying, make ours as loud as this. <laughs> and they didn't do that until the 2009 remasters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think Motown would have been bigger, but it sort of you know, kicked it into financially. Just, you know. and, and also, the Beatles always talked about people like uh, Marvin Gaye and, um, and Mary Wells and, and the, the Motown artists they liked, especially in 63. Yeah. And Dusty years. Springfield was also a big fan yeah. of Motown. Yeah. I think you have to oh, go. Yeah. Barry Gordy said that the Beatles were a big part of helping break Motown to be bigger because obviously they proselytized about it so much. But at the end of the day, those Motown tracks were just so wonderful. They would have happened anyway. You imagine without the Beatles, they would have still been big tracks. Not to mention Mrs. Mills' covers of Money. Was <laughs> so I couldn't. Back to Mrs. Mills. I thought she did. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> she actually just she said, what's, going, said on. What's, going what's going on. on. Just right. if you... <laughs> Mrs. No, Miller. no, no. She did a hard day's night. <laughs> I'm going to go straight back there, the gentleman on the other. Okay, so the question being, at the famous story of Ed Sullivan being at the airport, and that's where he encountered the commotion surrounding the Beatles, and that's where we... But Mark? Well, I'm looking into this very thoroughly, as thoroughly as I can, and I found evidence of other trips that Sullivan made to the UK in 63. Uh -huh. I know he was there in April, I think he was there in June, but I've found no evidence he was there in October. Not yet, I'm still looking. Sylvia was there, <laughs> not Ed. Does anybody else want to come in on that? <laughs> yeah, Bruce Beiser, wow. I was talking to him the other day, and he says that he has found um, 
Sullivan's talk of the town columns for that entire period when mm -hmm. he was supposed to be in England. It's not absolutely dispositive because you can sometimes write columns, you know, for when you're away or have an assistant file or whatever. But, but you internet. would expect him to mention something about a trip to England, and uh, and he doesn't. So it's looking increasingly like that is not true. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's a big myth debunked yeah. if it's true. You know, if yeah. it's not true, we're I'm going to jump right down to the far left there, the gentleman on the end. Okay. Okay, so we had a question regarding the, uh, the buildup prior to the Ed Sullivan Show well, well, and print I th I think and this, radio. Just and starting with WMCA here in New York, they really jumped on um, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and that sort of kicked off a lot of things. They played it. I'm sorry. I know. Uh, Al Sussman Scott next Muni, to me is, yeah, is, is, talks about Scott Muni. But we, we, you know, MCA was thanked by Capital with the, the that that exclusive picture, picture sleeve, sleeve that we'd yeah. love to own. Yeah, they <laughs> but, had a picture but, sleeve that was just for WMCA. Yeah, with the you know, MCA good guys for on it. Sport. Let's not forget and, and, that. Yeah, yeah. Go, Come on. I yeah. want to hold your hand. Was released as we've said on December twenty sixth, which is not a good day for releasing records, and yet. The Beatles go to Paris on the 15th of Paris, France, on the 15th of January, 1964. And that night, hear that they're number one in America. So it's got to number one in America between the 26th of December and the 15th of January, which is absolutely record time. And you don't do that without there being the very hottest of buzzes. But wasn't there also a $40,000 campaign with all the bumper stickers on, especially in the East Coast? There was all that, but the, um, I've actually recently Ray. acquired some capital record production sales figure on a week by week basis and in the first few days of January 64 they couldn't print them fast enough yeah. also and Al, Al Sussman who's written a book also changing times he mentions a radio promotion a lot of radio promotion almost yeah. top 40 you know airing it despite capital and, really and, all, and also back then the billboard charts didn't move as fast as they do today it would start like at 60 and then go to 50 and maybe go to 30 it's like when Can't Buy Me Love went to number one on the second week. That was a major, major thing. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, it, it works the opposite. It premieres at the top and then fades down. But I want to hold so, your hand when I think it went 80, 43, 1. Yeah, that, that, that was a major, major thing because oh. it didn't happen that way. Yeah. It, it, turned the, it turned the entire American record business on its head. They'd never seen anything like it since Elvis. In fact, this was bigger than Elvis. And it, the Beatles hadn't even arrived here at that point. Wow. Yeah, well, it, that's what I was going to say. You know, the gentleman from Rochester, you know, said about all of this sort of build-up before the Sullivan show. And that kind of comes back to the what if, you know, what if they hadn't been on Ned Sullivan. Look at this, you know, the amount of pre-publicity. And who could live up to that? And yet they did. They actually kind of outdid it, you know. And right. that, that shows you that I think the Beatles would have basically succeeded no matter if it was Ed Sullivan or whoever it was right. at that point. Yeah. yeah, so visually they had to live up to it, right? And they yeah. did. Yeah. Gentleman was just commenting that, uh, you know, in the uh, West Coast, they only had radio. They didn't see the print ads. They didn't yeah. see the print hype and, and promotion. <laughs> <laughs> they had TV. They had fire. I know. But <laughs> they had Jerry Garcia, right? Cherry Garcia. I am going to, you know, before we do it, I'm going to shoot to my right there to Sarah. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Sarah was here yesterday. And we were, everybody say hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Thank you. Here we'll do it again. Uh, my question was about during Till There Was You when they showed all the names. Last night, um, Vince was talking about how angry Brian was about Sorry Girls, He's Married. And that was not in 
Brian's plans. And that was a produced someone on that Sullivan show. I was wondering what what did people in England think about did they know that John was married? Was that news to them? Yeah. Um the the wisdom in those days was that you would try and pretend that the stars were were available all the time and therefore that you, you would obscure the fact they were married when they were. Uh, and they tried to obscure John's marriage, and it lasted until about August 1963, when it was um, he was outed, as it were, as a married man. And through the autumn of 63, it was quite clear that he was married. And in fact, bringing Cynthia on the trip to the U.S. was a major statement that they were making, because previously she'd been kind of kept well in the background. I can well imagine, however, why Brian would have been upset by that. And really, they should never have done that without running it by Brian first. Oh, Do we know how John felt about it? Never mind Brian. Did, did John have no. any comment ever? None that I know. Does okay. anybody else? I've never seen anything from about that. That's interesting. Yeah. So um, with that, I'm, people are yelling at us to stop. Stop, 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 stop. 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 I love animals. animals. <laughs> <laughs> my, my people. This is so funny. Anyway, so we're getting the universal stop signal. Uh, I want to thank everyone for coming out and joining us for this panel. I want to thank this wonderful panel, Mr. Alan Cozen, Mr. Mitch Axelrod, Mr. Mark Lewis, and Mr. Richard Buskin, Mr. Rob Leonard. I'm Tony Chaguardo. The show is Fab Four Free for All. Fab the number four free the number four all dot com. You can hear this show again online in another couple of weeks. Thank you all for coming out. Happy fiftieth. Fab Four Free for All was edited and produced by Tony Triguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All.